Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Nightlight. We have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that amazing intro. And if you want to hear more of that great voice, you can go over to his website. It's nativestorytellers.com. And he and his wife have a wonderful amount of material there that uh, lets you know about that particular culture and how it has flourished throughout time. Tonight, Mark and I have an amazing guest. Dr. Greg, Little, Dr. Greg Little is with us, and uh, he and Mark are going to be talking about, oh, about 5,000 years of spiritual mortuary and artistic evolution across the Gulf Coast. And if they run out of time, they may go into some other of the topics that he is so talented and gifted in as well. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks, Barbara. Uh, better ask you how your weekend was so that NSA has time to put in their subject line that they're listening to Night Light on October 16, <laughs> 2018, and the apostate host will be discussing giants and native engineering achievements, and you know, this can be you know, one of those shows where you know, they can use it as an example of the subversive co-hosts uh, you know, <laughs> or th- throwing an ice cube dur- during the <clears throat> show. So. Well, well mm-hmm. you may think you're kidding, but there have been moments when I've thought, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you know, we know how the giant shows go when they always draw – you know, a lot of attention, good and bad, but, um, yeah, I think we're going to have a really good discussion tonight with an expert. Oh, I'm really looking forward to him. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And let's see, i got a couple other uh, little follow-ups to discuss. Um, I spoke with – I didn't have – Time to talk with Catherine today, but uh, you know we did uh, t- 
o'clock, I think, uh, Friday night, and she, she said the uh, Shakespeare Oxford uh, Fellowship Conference was uh, well attended, and there were a few new faces there, so and, uh, good for them. Absolutely. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, talk with her more about, you know, did you hear anything about the show, but, you know, uh, you know the show influencing people being there, but um, um, so so far she was just you know, saying that there, you know a few new people were um, in, in attendance, so uh, that, that's that's good for for them. And let's see, had a really enjoyable visit to the Pickaway County Historical Society or a, a, a museum. In Circleville, Ohio, Saturday. That you know, that was a neat place, and um, just about everything with the you know, massive mound and the sprawling earthworks uh, are gone. You know, just the town uh, just kind of consumed er- everything that was there a couple thousand years ago. But there, there, you know, there's just, just like one of those places, like one of those places that just kind of Gives off an energy, and I just really enjoyed it. So that, that was oh, really, that's cool. Uh, mhm. And let's see. Oh, uh, also want to remind our listeners, um, you know, we're taking next week off, but we'll be back on the thirtieth with uh, Dr. Rita Louise. Mhm. I'm looking forward to that one too. Yeah. Yep. And. Um. Yeah, and don't forget to listen to Coast to Coast tonight. Uh, Nick Parisi will be the first guest. Um, even though Nick was our guest last week talking about you know, his research into Rod Serling uh, for his biography that just came out today, um, you know, we'll still let... George think he has a, an, an exclusive. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so yeah, we are. Light light is becoming show prep for coast. So let's see. Um, yeah, I think I've pretty much um, gone through enough of my ramblings, and you know, just to follow up um, you know, the. Manufactured holiday Columbus Day. Yeah, we're just going to have uh, Dr. Greg Little uh, talking to us about um, a lot of the Mississippian culture uh, that was flourishing about you know, what 1000 AD, and you know, might get a little bit into uh, the archaic Adena and Hopewell cultures. So that you know, that's kind of just spanning, like you said, four or five thousand years. <clears throat> yeah, it's only a two-hour show, too. So yeah. we had best get him on and get going, won't you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, okay. Uh, and, uh, and also, you know, want to say if uh, uh, you want to learn more about uh, you know some of uh, Greg's other works, like uh, being the publisher of alternate perceptions uh, you can go to 
apmagazine.info to get a little bit more info about what he, he, he does and his interest in all these fascinating subjects. So uh, let, let's bring Greg on. Hi, Greg. Hey, Welcome hi, Mark, and hi, Barbara. Uh, glad to hi. be with you. Uh, if the CIA, FBI, NSA, or anybody else is listening, hello to them, too. I can't believe they don't have something better to do, but if they're listening, maybe they'll learn something. <laughs> <laughs> One can hope. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're okay. That's. Uh, yeah, I like said all the have... magic words there. You know, I work a bit in criminal justice, well, more than a bit, and there's magic <laughs> words you say, and uh, they record those and listen to it, and so that's good. I have no problem with it. <laughs> there are no secrets here. Okay, yeah, there. That, that, you know, this is like the start of our sixth show. I, I'm sure we already have a pretty, pretty big file already, so this is just... What makes a difference? Let's just let's just have fun with giants. Okay. So yeah, let's see. Um, since, since we are uh, going to start off by talking about giants, um, yeah, there is you know, the controversy about you know, like you know the giant deniers and you know. But they're how do you deny some you know all these reports the Smithsonian reports that say you know Great Smith Mount had three uh, you know giants in it or three you know extremely large people it, you know Don Dragu's uh, mounds for the dead even has a photograph of one so I, like how, how do we get past this you know, mental block about there there were giants and then you know they counter with you know the alternative people are just making up stuff there's no giants there were a few tall people so how do we make sense of this what what do we say to each other and find the truth the this whole this whole controversy uh, really boils down to just a handful of skeptics that are very noisy uh, and very active as skeptics. They call themselves skeptics, but they're really not skeptics. Uh, they are true believers in a different way. They like to make fun of people that believe in anything odd or unusual as a true believer, but they're true believers in their own way. Uh, in any event, let's let's talk about giants then. Okay, so... The idea of giants, of course, has been around a long time, and what they like, what the skeptics like to do, is always take it back to the Bible. Uh, I don't do that. I don't really talk about that because it is. Uh, there's really not much proof. There are a lot of stories that we have, uh, but we do know what archaeology has found, and I know a lot about the United States archaeology. I know that there are a lot of very large skeletal remains that have found that have been found in Europe uh, and in parts of Asia and Euroasia. Uh, but in the United States, back starting uh, in the early 1800s, when when American archaeology began, uh, the, Smith, the early Smithsonian and people before them began excavating in mounds. The very first one, of course, that, uh, that's considered a scientific excavation was done by Thomas Jefferson, of all people. 
Uh, Jefferson, in fact, was interested in mounds. He was interested in uh, the, the skeletal remains within mounds. And he actually uh, commissioned a number of military excursions to mounds uh, to survey them, look at them, and find them because he had heard all these strange reports. But in, in any event, when they began excavating these mounds, these reports of huge skeletons started emerging. Uh, right now, as far as anybody knows, there is somewhere between one to 2,000 newspaper reports that were generated from the early 1800s until about 1920 or so. And in those one to 2,000 newspaper articles, they talk about skeletal remains pulled from mounds that ranged anywhere from seven feet, and some get extremely large, 10, 20, 20 feet or so. Mm -hmm. What I began doing along with the British uh, author Andrew Collins was we decided to look at the real archaeological reports. Sometimes we would take the newspaper reports and then try to run down the source of them, of the uh, giants. Uh, occasionally that led us back to archaeological reports. So the bottom line to that is this. We, we went through all the Smithsonian publications that they generated from roughly 1847 to about uh, the 1880s or so, or early 1890, <clears throat> and what we found were there were 17 reports of their archaeologists excavating skeletal remains seven feet and above. Uh, the one you mentioned about Don Dragu, he found one that was seven foot two inches tall. That was not with the Smithsonian, but he was actually from the, doing it for the Carnegie Institution. There were a in, bunch in found Pittsburgh. along. I'm sorry. In in Pittsburgh. Yes. Uh, he also, uh, not him, but there were several other archaeologists from the University of Kentucky that excavated along the Ohio River. Uh, mm -hmm. They found four or five large skeletons. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, my estimation is there's probably about 20 or so arche mainstream archaeological reports in addition to the ones that the Smithsonian found that showed that skeletal remains um, up to about seven foot eight or so had been removed from mounds. So there's 40 or 50 of those accounts altogether. And out of, statistically speaking, that's really not possible. People believe that there are lots of seven-footers around, and skeptics will say, just look at the NBA. Uh, or they'll say there's seven-foot people all over the place. And that's not really true. It's roughly one out of every 150,000 people actually reaches seven feet in height. So for the Smithsonian to pull out 17 skeletons, uh, that you would, they would have needed to – 17 seven-foot skeletons, they would have needed to pull out over two million. Uh, and they didn't get close to that. It's believed they pulled out about 50,000. Uh, statistically speaking, it's impossible. I think that we published the first statistical study, and actually some of the skeptics like that. And they said that's the first evidence that there's something unusual going on here. And since most of those large skeletons will, were pulled out of Adena-era mounds, uh, which are uh, relatively old, uh, they called that the Adena elite hypothesis, with their assumption being that for some reason these seven-footers that were around then became the leaders of the Adena mound builders. 
and when they died, they were buried in these elaborate tombs. So that kind of takes you to to um, what we really believe um, happened then. Uh, I don't necessarily believe in that Adena elite hypothesis. I personally believe that there was a hereditary group of very tall people. Uh, they were probably hybrids of Neanderthal, Denisovan, and modern human. Um, Andrew Collins and I have done a book on this that will come out actually almost a year from now. It's been at the publisher for about four months. And mainstream publishers sometimes take over a year, so it's scheduled for next September. Graham Hancock also has got a book coming out on the same topic, and uh, we were with him a couple weeks ago in Little Rock at a conference. Uh, he has also addressed the idea of the tall ones, uh, although he doesn't necessarily agree with our conclusion that they were hybrids of a sort. Um, but anyway, they were here. Skeptics don't like that. Skeptics have come up with all kinds of ridiculous explanations uh, and the reason why, I believe, has to do with a couple things. One is they uh, do not like it going back to the Bible. They are very anti, anti-Christianity, anti-Bible as fact. Um, I'm not saying I am for that. I'm simply saying they are so against anything out of the Bible that if we could show that there were actually what we might call giants in the past, well, that validates something in the Bible, and they simply can't let that happen. So I believe that's one of their main motivators in this. Uh, another one is that uh, it is actually a way of denigrating Native Americans and Native American culture. What they've said, and you can tell it in the way they write, uh, I am a psychologist by profession, uh, the way they write about these things is they say, oh, the Native Americans were no bigger than us. Uh, they were no taller than us. We know where all of them came from, uh, that they all came from Siberia and Asia, and that is simply not true. Uh, they were probably a culturally and hereditarily much more rich and diverse group uh, than Europeans were or are, uh, and that's being denied. So I think there's two main factors at work. I know others have cited some other possible reasons, but those are the two I believe. Uh, and so you can call it a conspiracy. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think they're always consciously aware of their motives. Uh, but one thing that, that some people do is when you get into a belief system and you continue to espouse the same belief, like saying there were no giants, there were no giants, you have to dismiss every single find that contradicts your belief. Uh, and that's what they're doing. It's a way to maintain their belief system. So that's kind of a summary. Is that a little more than you were looking for? Oh, it's, uh, perfect. I, it sounds, you know, I don't know, you know, the mainstream uses you know, cult archaeology for alternative uh, researchers, but you know, the deniers seem like they're uh, actually displaying some cult behaviors of just, you know. Oh, absolutely. It, it, uh, absolutely. Like, I have it, actually yeah. called archaeology a cult in that book, in a book called Path of Souls, the one that most of mm -hmm. this is discussed in. 
I did say that archaeology almost functions like a cult. They only allow the people within it to do the work. They deride anybody on the outside. Uh, and the truth is they're very, they, they tend to get very upset when outsiders write books about their field, and those books sell, uh, and they get quite angry about it. Uh, that is one of the few fields that calls itself scientific, but in truth, uh, it's more intuition and almost psychic, uh, psychic, psychically trying to figure out what happened. You know, they will take a few pieces of pottery uh, or a few points, and then they will come up with a complete culture from it. And if that's not intuition or psychic guesswork, uh, I don't really know what is. They use some scientific methods, but that does not make them a science. Uh, they are a belief-driven system. Uh, I have great respect for many archaeologists. I have a lot of archaeologists that are that are friends, some of whom don't mind me mentioning their names, and others have said, "Please never ever mention my name." Uh, and they are they are. A lot of them are really afraid of losing funding, losing academic positions, uh, losing tenure, not, be, not getting grants, uh, and they just don't want to be associated with anything outside of their mainstream. Uh, it's very controlled internally. You know, it's, it's, what role do you think the Giants played in – the culture, uh, uh, and you said that you didn't think that they were really the elites. No, I think they were the elite. I just don't agree with the elite hypothesis in that the Adena people revered the tall people no matter who they were, and they made them the leaders. Uh, there is research that shows that – I'll give you a little research study out of uh, – okay. uh, it's a type of psychology. Uh, analysis has shown that in general with elections, whoever the taller person is, they tend to win. Tallness and height, it's the same thing in businesses. Uh, in general, people can move up in business um, the taller they are. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but there is a relationship there. Uh, for some reason, height seems to bestow certain characteristics attributed to those individuals. That is, we attribute certain leadership characteristics to taller people. Uh, and that's what their concept of the Adena elite hypothesis is. So naturally, when they were buried, they were stuck in these mounds and in more elaborate tombs. Uh, I believe that there was a hereditary group of people who came into the Americas there were already lots of people here in the Americas, and these people brought with them certain types of culture and technological abilities, uh, pottery, uh, lots of other things with agriculture and probably animal husbandry, uh, and they very quickly – they also had a spiritual ideas, and I know that's where we're going to go. They had a religious mm -hmm. and spiritual system. And they very quickly moved to the leadership roles within the indigenous populations, both in North and South America, because there's a great deal in South America. That book, Path of Souls, didn't really talk about South America at all. 
the new one that we have coming out uh, next September does have uh, numerous chapters on giants in South America and the roles that they played. Uh, so those people became the leaders. Uh, their their status within the tribal organizations that they were in was bestowed upon them through heredity. They were the shaman, the medicine men and women, uh, the chiefs, uh, and uh, really all of the elite people. Uh, they they there were probably quite a few of them during the Adena times. Uh, I believe during the Hopewell period, uh, and we're we're talking about all these eras and not really putting dates on them. Uh, Adena can go back to two to three thousand BC. Most people put it to maybe one thousand BC, but there are Adena mounds that are older than that. And then you get into the Hopewell culture, which started somewhere around 500 B.C. or so, uh, and that transitioned into the Mississippian. Uh, and the Mississippian began, depending on where you are somewhere and who you read, somewhere between A.D. 600 uh, to 800 or so. Uh, but the leadership, the, these tall ones, I believe, left the east and started moving south, and they became the leaders of the mound builders. All that is absolute speculation. It's based on the evidence, but it's speculation nonetheless, and I admit it that it is. Okay, but you know, you in you know, Path of Souls, you know, you, you do mention uh, schoolcraft's um, work, work with. Uh, the native population in what the early part of the 19th century. Yeah. You know, you know, what importance do you attach to his uh, you know research into the folklore of the people? You have um, a couple couple samples uh, that you know. Flip through the pages. Uh, the Indian fairy book. Uh, oh yeah, has, Schoolcraft has the white wrote a lot. Uh, Schoolcraft mm-hmm. actually married uh, a Native American. Uh, Henry Schoolcraft was his name. Uh, he did a lot of folklore and ethnological research uh, with Native Americans. Um, he was a um, can't remember what you called them then. He worked on reservation. He was the reservation officer in several places. But he wrote a lot of books for the U.S. government, most of which were published by them. He collected lots of ethnological stories. And he wasn't the first, uh, but he was probably the most prolific of all those early people. And they're the ones that gathered together uh, all of the information on what these Native Americans believed about life and death, where we came from, where we're going, what the purpose of life is, and so on. Uh, and so the real importance of that, these people actually did, these early ethnographers actually did record what the Native Americans believed. Some of them managed to gain access to the secret societies that were, again, hereditary in nature, uh, now, exactly how they got into these societies, um, they talk about it, but it's not it's not precisely known what they did. But they 
basically befriended themselves to the tribes. They became very close to the shaman and the medicine societies, and eventually the medicine societies permitted them access. Uh, and so they began recording what the Native Americans really believed and what some of their rituals were about. Most of the stories that we know of, most of these tales uh, and mythological legends uh, that people are real familiar with in Native American stories, those are what are known as children's tales. And they were told to the populace uh, in order to instruct them in morals, uh, basic spiritual ideas. Uh, they used animals a lot because animals were spiritual creatures to them. And animals also had unique talents and abilities that were instructive for children. Uh, so they used those stories really as a way of education. But the secret societies had another whole set of of stories, and that's what is called the sacred stories. Uh, and there was some written about it uh, in the 1600s, 1700s, and even in the early 1800s. And it was put in books, and those books wound up in libraries. And when American archaeology began, and up until about 1990 or so, archaeologists essentially ignored all that information. And instead, what they wanted to do was to dig into mounds or dig into village areas, uh, collect pottery, collect points and other archaeological evidence, and then they would piece together their history, and they essentially ignored what the Native Americans them, themselves said. So archaeologists came up with this real elaborate, these real elaborate cultural ideas, such as Clovis I, for example, which we now know is... Mm -hmm is completely untrue. Uh, and in 1989 and 90, America's laws changed, and it meant that archaeologists could no longer go out and dig into mounds. They had to go through an elaborate process to be able to do any excavations at all. And if they found anything that was associated with a burial or they found burial remains, they immediately had to stop excavating, and then other people came in, and they were not allowed to examine rebury, test, or do anything with the skeletal remains. They had to immediately be repatriated to some Native American group. In addition, at the same time, 89 and 90, the Smithsonian and all other institutions that had ever received any federal money had to dispose of every burial artifact and every skeletal remain that they had recovered uh, that was that was identifiable as Native American in origin. This it's believed the Smithsonian once had somewhere around a million and a half or so skeletal remains in part or uh, in whole. As of a couple years ago, they only had a few hundred in storage, and those were all from South and Central America, and they couldn't get anybody to take them. So all of the giants, all the skeletal remains were reburied. In some cases, they were uh, cremated, uh, but they're all gone. Skeptics actually use that. They say, show me, the, show me the skeleton. You say they found it, but show me the skeleton. Well, it doesn't exist anymore. It's very convenient. 
So anyway, when the law changed, archaeologists could no longer do what they wanted to do, do all this excavation. So a large group of archaeologists began meeting uh, in, the, in the early 1990s. They did it on an annual basis, and through the year, they focused on trying to figure out what the Native Americans believed. So they, in addition to looking at a lot of symbols on artifacts, which we'll discuss in a minute, they went back and they reanalyzed all those old books that were done in the 16, 17, and 1800s, none of which had then been digitized or put on the Internet. That's why they were ignored. So in, in doing that, they unraveled what I consider to be and what they consider to, to be the greatest mystery of all, and that is what in the world did all these weird symbols mean that they found all over the place uh, when they would excavate Native American sites? The symbols had crosses. Some of them had what looked like a UFO on them. Uh, some of them had forked eyes. Uh, they, you would often see an eagle. You would see a plus sign. You would sometimes see what looked like the sun or a star, uh, and sometimes you would see a feathered serpent. Uh, and up until the around 2003 or 4, uh, it really wasn't known what those were and what they meant. But around that time, this group of anthropologists and archaeologists, there were some uh, ethnographers and folklorists involved. Up until that time, they didn't know what all these things meant, but suddenly they knew. And so it's now all been revealed what they believed about death, where we came from, why we're here, what the world is about, and so on. Some of that I put in that book, Path of Souls, uh, in particular, The Death Journey. Uh, I did not put in it the beliefs about how the universe began and why humans are walking on earth uh, and what the purpose is and what the forces are that are in constant conflict. But in The Path of Souls, I did specifically talk about this death journey uh, and where we came from and where we're going at death. Uh, and if you want to go there, that's fine. No, I mean in talking uh, about it. <laughs> we'll all eventually take the journey, but I mean talk about it. Well, uh, okay, uh, you know, let, let, let's build up to... Yeah, you know, the journey, and you know, start with uh, you and Andrew Collins driving around America, and, and you start getting these ideas about uh, Orion and Cygnus and Andrew's uh, you know, challenge of the mainstream that all this is about uh, Cygnus. So yeah, maybe we can start start there and. Well, it's about Cygnus and Orion, and if, you, uh, if you're an old-timer, if you've been around a while, you'll remember, and your, your old-time listeners will know about the constellation of Orion. Uh, and back many years ago, uh, I believe it was 1989, I'm not certain of that, uh, Robert Buval and Adrian Gilbert, in a book called The Orion Mystery, proposed that the three great the three pyramids at Giza, the large pyramids, were built to mimic the three belt stars of Orion. Uh, and as soon as that came out, um, lots of other people began finding other mound uh, mound sites, pyramids in North and in Central America and in South America, 
and lots of other sites in Egypt that they believed also mimicked those three stars. So the idea, up until around 2004, almost everyone in, uh, that was an alternative historian believed that chances are uh, the the belt stars of Orion were seen as the place where souls would make a journey to the sky after death. Uh, the Great Pyramid has a shaft from the king's chamber which pointed to Orion's belt, uh, and of course the three uh, the three pyramids. If you flip Orion in the sky, or you flip the way the pyramids are aligned, uh, the the two match up, not perfectly, but they still match up. So that was accepted up until around 2004. And when I say 2004, that's the year that Andrew Collins brought out his book, The Cygnus Mystery. But the build-up to that book, for a couple of years before that, Andrew Collins, the British, the British author and researcher, uh, had come to a conclusion at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. That is a, a site that goes back 11,000 years. It's the oldest known temple, stone temple in the world. Uh, he believed that it was oriented toward the northwest, and at that time, uh, the Gobekli Tepe was in use around 9000 B.C., uh, there's actually a hole in a stone, and you can make a sight line through it, and you would have been looking at the star Deneb, which is the main star of the Cygnus constellation, also known as the Northern Cross. It also has uh, it, it has a cross in the center, uh, and it also has three stars in the center that are offset. So Andrew then, while he was writing the book, he visited us in America. We became pretty good friends, uh, mainly because of his interest in Atlantis and the research that my wife and I did in the Bahamas uh, looking for Atlantis. Uh, but Andrew came over, and we traveled around to numerous mound sites in Ohio uh, and in Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, but in Ohio, standing in the middle of the great circle that has an eagle effigy in the center of it, um, which is in Newark, Ohio, Andrew came to the conclusion that the Cygnus constellation would have been directly overhead uh, at the precise time when this great circle was believed to have been used for cremations. So Andrew incorporated that into his book called The Cygnus Mystery. In that book, he actually did not come up with the idea that Cygnus uh, was one of the places where the souls went, but he had a colleague named Rodney Hale. Rodney Hale is an engineer in England. He's, uh, I think he's 86 years old now. But Rodney... Uh, had been talking to Andrew about Cygnus and wondering why Gobekli Tepe was aligned. And Rodney went out one night and took some pictures of Cygnus and then got some online. Uh, he then got pictures of Orion, uh, and he got very a very good schematic of the pyramids. And he found that the three belt stars of Cygnus actually matched the alignment of the three pyramids perfectly. And, of course, that matched Andrew's idea. 
So when Andrew's book came out in 2004, it caused a great stir within the alternative historian community. Um, and I probably said something wrong there. Andrew did, in fact, initially come up with the idea. Rodney simply verified it. Um, so that was the beginning of it. Uh, Andrew then spent uh, years actually coming to sites in America and all over the world uh, gathering a lot more evidence on Cygnus. And I'm trying to remember exactly when I told him, uh, I believe it was 2005 or so, or 2006, uh, I told Andrew that I had found that this group of Americans uh, working on what is known as the Southeastern Ceremonial Complex, which I'll define as the the symbols uh, that I mentioned earlier that were found on artifacts from the Mississippian era. The, this, the crosses, the circles, the feathered serpent, and so on. Um, and I told him that both Orion and Cygnus were involved in what the Native Americans believed. So slowly but surely, we began piecing this together, and the result of that was that book called The Path of Souls. So that's kind of the build-up to it. Uh, Orion it was depicted as an eye in hand. That is what it is called. Uh, it's actually not an eye, uh, but even if you go to uh, archaeologists today and you say, what's the eye in hand symbol, most of them will say, oh, it's a universal symbol, and you'll say, of what? And they'll say, well, it's just a universal symbol. Uh, but what the eye in the hand represents, and it's not an eye again, uh, it is a severed hand, severed at the wrist. It dangles in the sky on the western horizon uh, when it's imp most important. Uh, the eye is an ogi. The, the word ogi is spelled O-G-E-E, -E, and it means a slit or window, and it's a slit in the sky, and it is Orion's nebula, which is seen right below the three belt stars when it's on the western horizon, and it's also known as Messier 42. Uh, the Mayans called it Shilbaba, and it was the place where souls transitioned after death. Uh, when I say souls, I mean what's called the life soul, because we have two souls according to this belief system. Uh, but the soul we identify as um, us that has personality and memory uh, and um, a unique character to it, that soul is actually called the free soul. That soul transitions back to the sky by first going to this ogi. So that's the hand, and that is that the hand is Orion, constellation of Orion, and it is the first step on the journey of the dead soul. And this the idea of the soul uh, is that it came from the stars and it returns to the stars. But it is like taking a, a plane trip from, say, Memphis to London, which we've done, uh, and we have to first, of course, get to the airport, but then we f usually fly to Atlanta, and then we'll hop over to London. So you have a couple stops on this trip. So when this, when you're in this hands, uh, the ogi, you then traverse through the underworld during the next day, 
and then you come out on the eastern horizon the next night as soon as the sun goes down. And this soul then hops out of this ogi to the Milky Way. And they saw the Milky Way as a river of souls making the journey. They were souls from all over making the journey, and they're all moving toward the north. So the soul had a lot of trials and tribulations, but eventually it reaches a split in the path. The archaeologists and people that unraveled all this have identified that split as the dark rift of the Milky Way, which is right where Cygnus sits. And at that split, they encounter this large raptor bird, usually talked about as a great eagle. Some of the more modern tribes have called it a buffalo-robed woman or an old man, but most, well, virtually all the old mound builder beliefs depicted on their symbols uh, describe it as a great eagle. And that eagle serves as a judge. If the soul passes the test of that judge, it's allowed to move on. It then goes through another ogi and then goes to what is called the other world, which more modern natives and the the trick they used to say to the whites that would ask them about death, uh, they'd say the happy hunting ground. Uh, but it's the other world. Uh, and any of those little elements we can talk about if you want. Uh, but that's kind of a summary of the journey the soul takes. So both... Cygnus and Orion were important in this. I will add this. Back a few weeks ago, we were at a conference. Andrew, myself, my wife, who talks about Atlantis, uh, and Graham Hancock were all at the same conference in Little Rock, Arkansas. And Graham Hancock, in his talk, uh, he was talking about his new book that is uh, due out in April. Uh, He did show the book Path of Souls. He did say this is the... Uh, the first time that he would acknowledge that both Orion and Cygnus were important in this journey. Uh, He also mentioned that the Egyptian beliefs about the two souls and the death journey, he now realized are identical to those of the uh, Native American mound builders. So that's actually pretty profound because Graham Hancock is the top personality in the field. Andrew is... Up there also, uh, I'm more of a behind-the-scenes player, um, and as you as you well know, I don't really come out of the woodwork that often. I just kind of write and uh, do my own thing. I can talk a lot if you if you let me go. I I can talk a great deal. No, I, you know, you know, you've given us a lot to think about, about and you know, like a couple examples or. You're talking about like all the animal stories used for you know like moral guidance and you know this uh, like raptor that uh, is uh, you know like the, the judge. judge yeah so, you know, a lot of this stuff you know, like the animal uh, stories you know that's you know it kind of sounds a, a lot like Aesop's fables and then you know this. Uh, judge of the, you know, what re- recent dead kind of sounds like, you know, like Sharon from Greek mythology. It, it, it just, it, 
just seems like all around the world there's you know it's kind of like the same a, a lot of the same type of ideas uh, about you know the afterlife. Exactly. It just, it, 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 it just seems like it, it, it's like one source just kind of sent out. You know, <laughs> The you know this idea yeah just got a little bit of uh, embellishments and adaptations but it's basically all the same thing just we're all the same people. Well, you've hit on something there, and there is, I believe, and so does Andrew, and I think Graham Hancock does too now. There is a commonality in all these beliefs, and it stems back in time, and it may well go back. We think this. We say Andrew and I believe this developed this idea uh, developed about uh, 18,000 years ago, which is an astonishing time period. Uh, but 18,000 years ago, if you were in the northern hemisphere, Cygnus, the star Deneb, served as the North Pole star because of the precession of the equinoxes and the wobble mm-hmm. of the Earth. Deneb was the pole star. And you would see this, very it's the 19th brightest star in the sky. You would see this star that never moves. The Egyptians called the North Pole stars the imperishable stars. And so you would see that all the time. And you would see every night the Milky Way and that dark rift of the Milky Way right and the North Pole going across the sky every single night. Now, if you look to the far south, all the way to the south, what you would see is Orion on the horizon on the far south. That is when we believe and why we believe that uh, they developed this belief system roughly 18,000 years ago. It could have been as much as 20 uh, or as recent as 16 because Deneb was awful close to the pole star for that entire period. Uh, now, it's possible that it was around before that, but I would say eighteen to 20,000 years ago is, is the ballpark. Those people who developed it probably moved all over the place. They carried this belief system with them, and with it came power and status. Whoever carried this idea system with them uh, had a great deal of power, and they may well have been these elite hereditary giants that we have talked about. Uh, we do know, I mean, this gets into genetics. I don't know if you want to go there, uh, but the genetics of Native Americans is not as simple as everybody makes it seem, nor, and the genetics of South Americans, indigenous South Americans, is even more complicated. There are tribes in South America that are identical in genetics, human DNA, to tribes in New Zealand and Australia. They are identical to the Aborigines, and what that means is that is where they came from. Those people live in the Amazon. I mean, it's astonishing. They're, they're, the, the DNA goes back probably about 50,000 years ago. There were people in the Americas certainly 150,000 years ago, but chances are there were quite a few people in South America 200 to 300,000 years ago. There are quite a few sites there that date to that. American archaeologists don't accept anything that South American archaeologists put in their textbooks, but South American archaeology textbooks tell us 
that they have very clear definitive evidence that people lived there at least 200,000 years ago, if not earlier. So the Americas were populated long before this belief system developed. And somewhere along the line, these these more elite populations moved in, uh, and they simply blended in to the indigenous populations. Uh, but because they had other knowledge, um, they became the leaders. They became the rulers. But it probably was a worldwide belief system. The same, uh, the same uh, alignments that are involved in Cygnus and Orion, you can actually do, and I've done this in about uh, 20 American mound sites, where you can see these alignments across mounds, that is the star settings, you can see the setting, the rising and setting of Orion on a very specific date from one mound across another, and then you can see the setting of Cygnus that same night from that same key mound across another. Uh, the time period when this took place uh, during the mound builders was always around the winter solstice, uh, and that that also changed uh, as the star as the star pattern we see change due to the precession of the equinoxes. Uh, but it's also found in Malta, in the Mediterranean. Uh, it's found at, at numerous European sites, uh, a number that are in other Eastern European sites, uh, and in Turkey. So it probably was a worldwide belief system and it, it's probably the one that the Egyptians believed in, and although they developed their own unique twist on it. But they also had a weighing of the soul. Every soul was judged. Uh, we had two souls, the Ka and the Ba, uh, and the soul had to, had to make a journey. So all of those elements are present in these ancient cultures, so we probably do have some sort of a common element in the development of all these. Yeah. Uh, um... Barbara, do you have a question, or do you want me to keep going? Oh, she's. I, I think I think Barbara wants to keep you going. She mentioned okay. her cat earlier, if you remember. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, okay. So, anyhow, uh, Greg, you know one of the you know, nice things about uh, Path of Souls is you know with this. Uh, you know, the severed hands uh, hanging down, you know, it's, it's based on or, Orion's belt. You know, most of the time, you know, you hear all about, you know, Orion the hunter and yes. it's all the, you know, Well, those are more modern medi- constellations. The, of course, yeah, the Native the medi- Americans had their own. Yeah, and the Med—it's always like kind of seen as the Mediterranean point of view. Now, try European. The Europeans adopted yeah. the Greek and um, some of the Roman, uh, and so the, it's more of a European-dominated point of view. Yeah, um, and it, yeah, and you know, this is the first. You know, when I read your book, uh, you know, this you know the first time I was hearing you know, this. Uh, Oh, uh, we could, uh, you know, v- variation of you know, the the or- Orion's belt being used from the Native American perspective. 
and you know, I thought that was really interesting. And you, know, you already explained that, but you know, you, you do a great job of you know, giving us insight into uh, you know that that belief system with the hand. I, I, I thought that was really cool. And and you know, let's you know, we can also take a look at so, some of what some of the artifacts reveal. Uh, the, you know about this. You know, say the Great Rift and like you know the, the, you know, the forked eye motif. You know, right. Uh, you know, we, we should you know probably get into that now since you know your information is sure. still fresh in the listeners' minds. Well, they had they. You're talking about the symbols that were often displayed mm-hmm. on artifacts, and there are a lot of uh, key symbols. Obviously. Um, I didn't. I didn't mention one that has been curious for years, and that is uh, the feathered serpent. So, what has been found on a couple hundred artifacts from Native American mound sites, uh, mainly on pottery, uh, was depicted a uh, literally a, a serpent that had feathers. The serpent usually looked like a rattlesnake, although not always. Uh, a lot of people would say, oh, that's similar to the South American feathered serpent Quetzalcoatl. Uh, it is not. It is not the same thing. Uh, the feathered serpent is clearly identified now. Uh, it is it's simply accepted as the constellation of Scorpius. Uh, there is a story about it, uh, the Ukulina, uh, and one of the animal stories about it, and the Ukulina had a giant red eye, uh, which also became its heart in some stories. Uh, the red eye of this feathered serpent is the star Antares. Uh, and Scorpius is seen in the, now it's seen in the southern or southwestern horizon, uh, mainly during the summer, uh, and then it's not seen in the winter. Scorpius uh, stays below the horizon throughout the entire winter. And when it's below the horizon, the Native Americans believed it was that it was in the underworld. So Scorpius was the ruler of the underworld. When it went to the underworld beneath the waters, they, they would use the oceans or like lake waters to depict the underworld. It's what's beneath. Uh, it would lose its wings, and it became a giant serpent under the water. Some... Natives called it a water panther. Um, Some of the natives in Alabama, some of the archaeologists in Alabama insist on calling it a water tiger, although I don't think we ever had tigers uh, in North America. We had panthers. Uh, In any event, um, that is Scorpius. So that has been seen on a lot of artifacts. It's now known what it was. Uh, In addition, you would see this uh, great eagle, this great eagle has been shown sometimes uh, as uh, having a skull in it in one of its talons, uh, which means its power over life and death. Uh, it has been found on loads and loads of ceremonial artifacts. Now, I, I need to mention that, ceremonial artifacts. Uh, people, people look at these incredible artifacts, and you get to thinking these were household items. They were not. Uh, it's now known, too, that these were ceremonial items used during the Path of Souls ritual. Uh, they held special substances in them, 
sometimes which uh, were hallucinogenic substances, other times they were stimulants because the Path of Souls ritual lasted the entire night uh, during the winter solstice or a time frame close to it. Um, back to back to uh, these containers. Uh, all the containers would always have symbols on them. There are some that would have, for example, a skull, a wide-eyed skull on one side and then the hand on the other. And you could see a kind of a hump above the wide-eyed skull and then uh, a line would go down under this uh, eye and hand on the other side. And what it represented was the wide-eyed skull represents what is known as the life soul. It is the physicality of the body which is animated by the most primordial spiritual substance of all, which is the earth. Uh, they were well aware that we were made from the earth, minerals and so on. Uh, and all of the all all things, be it uh, earth or rocks or crystals or water, fire, anything, all of it was spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Uh, it has spirit, uh, and spirit goes back to the essence of the universe and when it was created. Uh, that's somewhere where I'd love to go as we move on with this. Uh, but they knew that we came from the earth. So they believed that for the large masses of people, when the body dies, when the physical body dies, you have to send the physical body back to its primordial essence. So that is one reason they performed a lot of cremations. In other cases where we have found these, uh, the, the elaborate tombs with the skeletons in them, what they were doing there was the same thing the Egyptians were doing, and that is they were uh, hoping for a reincarnation. Uh, they were hoping that whoever that that soul, whoever's free soul it was, would return to Earth and they could reanimate the body somehow. Uh, they had that belief system, and I was actually amazed when I read about that uh, in in what the archaeologists finally... I keep calling them archaeologists, but they were mainly anthropologists. Uh, so that's another example, this skull. Uh, there is another type of skull that was depicted on some artifacts, and it would be a wide-eyed skull, but it has what looks like a speech box or usually fire coming out that looked like a long, bent tongue that would go toward the sky. And that, re that represents the free soul leaving the body at death. And that has always been a great mystery, too, but it, it represents that free soul making the leap. Uh, there are loads of these other artifacts. There's a cross symbol that has a star around it. That is typically Deneb. Uh, there are a lot of artifacts that show a, a type of... Um, it, it, it's a type of uh, two lines where one is longer than the others. They often did it with eye paint. It's like the forked eye. You would have a dot in the center, and then there's a fork going over it, but always one line is longer than the other. Uh, that represents the star Deneb and the, forked, um, the fork in the Milky Way, the dark rift. But there are lots and lots of these symbols all of which relate to this path of souls. Uh, there's another fantastic set of artifacts that are pallets that are about a foot and a half across. They're always round. 
They're about two inches thick. They're usually made from uh, a type of sandstone. They're very well polished. And on them, they will depict skulls. They depict the eye and hand. They depict rattlesnakes that are twisted together, sometimes skulls that are twisted together. Uh, it's known now what those were used for. Those actually served, uh, you can call them an altar, but I prefer to call them a table. Uh, they were brought out in front of the masses during this Path of Souls ceremony. Uh, they were then put on a support legs, which probably was wood. And on top of those, they placed these ceremonial bowls and containers that had sacred substances in them that the participants had to drink or take as the ceremony proceeded. Um, the, the, the priests, the ruler would dress up in garb to make them look like an eagle. Uh, they would have a forked eye painted on their face. They would carry a ceremonial mace that often had a cross carved into the end of it. A ceremonial mace is a one-piece stone axe, which would be pretty much useless after the first time you hit somebody with it because it would break but it was used for ceremonies. It depicted the king's or the chief chief's power of life and death. Sometimes they would carry skulls uh, on their side to depict the power of life and death. People often ask, why in the world did the mound builders and the those who built the earthworks, which are themselves incredible, why did they build those? Uh, and w what led them to? Well, the answer lies in this belief system. Uh, the populace believed that these people who were the elite of their tribes and the elite of their culture held the power of life and death over them and their relatives and their descendants, which that is part of this belief system. How well you participate in these various rituals um, whether or not they were mandatory rituals, but and if you did not participate, it would bring ill will and bad luck to your family and your family to come, your descendants. So they had this power over the populace, uh, and the populace willingly helped erect not just mounds, but the incredible earthworks, of which America has the most extensive geometric earthworks found anywhere in the world. A lot of the things here in America are just as impressive, if not more impressive, than anything found anywhere else in the world. I will admit right. the, great, the Great Pyramid is big, and the three pyramids there are big. Uh, Egypt, I believe, has 108 pyramids in it, but Cahokia, Illinois, one mound site had 120 mounds, and the the biggest mound at Cahokia, called Monk's Mound, uh, has a base one acre larger than the Great Pyramid. Uh, and actually, the biggest pyramid in the world is in Mexico, at Chula. It literally dwarfs the Great Pyramid. So the things here, while they may not be as exciting as some of the things maybe in Egypt or things that people read about in, uh, in Europe, uh, the things here are every bit as interesting and impressive. Um, one of the things that I try to do is to encourage people to go to mound sites, go to the museums. Most of the museums and sites are free. 
drop a few bucks on them, put, give them a donation, buy something there, and support it, because that's our culture. It's actually very impressive, and once you start visiting some of these places, uh, you'll come to have a much greater appreciation for what these people were doing here. So that's my little soapbox lecture there. <laughs> no, it's <clears throat> accurate. That's I did that last weekend. I started the show talking about going to Circleville. I, oh yes. Yeah, I I just I I love doing the same same thing and just try to. Well, you know, if, if you're in that area, the I mean, let's talk about a few places that people could go and should go to. Columbus, Ohio, has several mounds. Uh, but if you just go to the east of Columbus, to Newark, Ohio, mm-hmm. the largest and most extensive geometric earthworks in the world are there. Mm-hmm. One of them is in pristine, perfect condition. Everyone that goes there is absolutely just, uh, as as Andrew Collins said when he saw it, he was gobsmacked. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's a very interesting, I like that term uh, that the Brits used. Uh, there is an octagon and a circular formation. The octagon is made of walls of earth that are 16 feet high. The octagon encloses 50 acres. At each of the eight points, there is a small opening, but on the inside of the octagon blocking the opening is a truncated pyramid, which is a flat-top pyramid, which is earthen, of course. There are stone pyramids in Ohio and elsewhere. There's lots of them. Uh, but attached to this octagon is a 30-acre circle uh, made from walls of earth, 8 to 16 feet high. Uh, it, is a, it is a massive eclipse predictor. It follows and charts the movements of the moon reliably over the moon's 18.61-year cycle. It is absolutely an astounding thing to visit. Very few people can comprehend it, even by looking at the photos of it or by looking at it online or listening to a description of it. When you see it, you are absolutely overwhelmed. And the reason it's in pristine condition is that it now serves as Mountain Builders Golf Club. Uh, and the it's so That's right. they do maintain it very well. They don't dig into it. Uh, you can go visit it. The interestingly, the flat top mounds that I mentioned earlier, some of those are those are used as tea boxes. Uh, there are there were circles outside of that earthen circle. Some of those are now used as uh, greens uh, with a hole in them. Uh, it once connected to this to a large circular formation about a mile and a half and I can't I can't it's indescribable as to what it once looked like but it had a 56 mile long set of parallel earthen walls 56 miles long a uniform 160 feet wide about the width of an interstate and it ran 56 miles to an identical circle and octagon in Chillicothe, Ohio and that's just that's incredible, but there were several dozen of these. Uh, mostly, most of these were located in Ohio, but they're found as far south as uh, Tennessee, uh, and there, there's also some further north. There were actually quite a few of those once in of these geometric formations in New York State and in Pennsylvania, 
uh, in some of the northern states around the Great Lakes. But people oh, oh. really need to go to see these these places, the ones that exist. Moundville, Alabama is an incredible site. It's near Tuscaloosa, the home of the University of Alabama. It's run by the University of Alabama. has an amazing museum that once displayed loads and loads of skeletons in it. And if you go to newspaper reports from the 1930s, a uh, fellow by the name of Dr. Jones, who the museum is named for there, uh, in an article uh, in the newspapers uh, in Tuscaloosa, said that he had pulled out literally dozens of seven-foot skeletons uh, from Moundville burial mounds. Uh, that is denied today. None of those skeletons remain, of course. They've all been repatriated to Native American groups and have been reburied or are cremated. Uh, but Moundville is definitely worth seeing. It has t- 20 gigantic truncated pyramid mounds uh, in an area of about 170 acres. Uh, there are m- many, many other sites. I mean, I even ha- I almost hate to get on them because there's so many. Georgia has several. Uh, Akamogi and Etowah are incredibly important sites. Uh, there's an interesting place in Kentucky called the Lost City, uh, which is on private property, but it still has mounds. Uh, 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 I, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, what's ah? Look it up, Lost City, Kentucky mounds. Uh, just look it up online, and you'll see some of the old pictures. I have uh, three books. Uh, one of which was done by the University of Kentucky. Uh, we were there with Andrew Collins a few years ago. Uh, it's it's actually on Lost City Road. When you when you go to it, you'll you you take Lost City Road. <laughs> Interesting site. It had I believe it had seventy five mounds at one time. Uh, I I am pretty certain there were once a million mounds or more in America. Uh, the Smithsonian, when they did their survey in the mid eighteen hundreds, uh, identified a uh, hundred thousand mound sites that still existed. And some of those sites had up to 100 mounds, like Cahokia, or 120. Alabama probably had more mounds than anybody, but almost all of them have been destroyed. Uh, And that's the sad thing. Most people think of an Indian mound as a simple kind of a heap of earth, looks sort of like an ice cream cone at the top, and they put some burials in them. And it is true that uh, probably out of that million, more than half of them were conical burial mounds, uh, but what people don't realize is that many of those mounds have very elaborate stone or log chambers at their base uh, that had elaborate right. burials within them. And people just don't know. Uh, they just think that they put the bodies in or they burned them and covered them up. But it wasn't that simple. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree with you that you know, going to these uh parks and the museums or you know what you and Andrew did was you know go back to the original uh field notes and you know that's you know how so many people get involved in this and find it it's so intriguing is you know just read uh Dr. Webb's excavations of you know the Adena and Archaic, and you know some Hopewell mounds, and to see how e- unique e- each mound was. 
Well, it, you mentioned Webb. Your your friend Jason Gerald, I believe he's your friend, right? Uh, y- well, yeah. You know. Okay. <laughs> uh, Jason, Jason and Sarah, and Sarah too. <laughs> yeah, and Sarah Farmer wrote a really good book. Um, and uh, I know they've been on your show. Excellent book. I I did buy a mm-hmm. copy of it. I find it uh, th- their work is fantastic. Uh, the the main thing in this field that they're doing that somebody really needs to do is put together a complete collection of all these archaeological reports that were done. There, I have I, I can't even estimate how many there there are. Uh, I was astonished to find some uh, that had been done about Chickasaba Mound, which is a place where dozens of seven footers were supposedly found. Uh, and it's at what was once um, a SAC Air Force base uh, in near uh, Blyville, Arkansas. And Chickasaba, uh, one of my former archaeology professors at the University of Memphis, I had to take two classes in archaeology or anthropology when I went to school. They were taught by the same professor. Uh, and he wrote articles a few years ago um, about the Chickasaba Mound with another archaeologist, and they actually went to the Smithsonian and looked at a lot of the artifacts in the original field notes. Um, My point is this, that I discovered that quite by accident, but in the course of doing it, I start finding all these other reports that have been published in now obsolete journals that no longer exist, or in some sort of journal that the archaeologist kept, and it's it's stuffed away in a library shelf somewhere. It's not digitized, and nobody knows it exists. And these uh, unfound treasures or unrecognized treasures are probably languishing around in almost every major university museum in the country. Uh, and someone, I wish, uh, I'm a little too old to do it now, needs to begin putting together a collection of these because they're going to disappear otherwise. Libraries don't have the time nor the money uh, to digitize these things. And as you probably know, libraries are getting rid of their collections. Uh, They're moving everything to digital. But books that haven't been looked at for a long time, they're simply getting rid of. They're selling them. So I, I wish Jason – I know Jason and Sarah are, are doing that to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe like my mound encyclopedia was, this could be their lifelong task, um, although it's it's pretty much a thankless task. Um, anyway, uh, I do know there's loads and loads of these reports that we haven't found, I've never seen, they haven't seen. But I keep stumbling across reports that talk about giants. Well, I call we're calling them giant skeletons, but seven-footers. Uh, and they're just ones nobody's I, ever found. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm from oh, the God. South, uh, and that is a, okay. uh, a term of endearment. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, giants are, are an area that I have been fascinated with for forever. And... Two questions, actually. Are you familiar <clears throat> with the Brighton Wiener Cave in Bavaria? No, I am not. Um, I sent you a link to it. it uh, there was a report in the 1500s 
of a town who had the cave and they went in and they investigated it and they found huge bones and all sorts of other stuff there and uh mummies as well i believe and um it was it was on the same grounds as a UN peacekeeping force um and during during world war 2 there were actually um camps there and uh, they they had they they were concentration camps and um in the 70s 80s um there was a UN site there and I have a video on my website of a soldier that went into the cave and they brought out some bones and um I have pictures of the bones on my website. Hmm. Um Well, I pretty, I will definitely I, I will definitely take a look at that. Uh as I said in the very beginning, um I really hadn't focused much on anything other than North and South America. I am aware that uh, Hugh Newman and Jim Vieira, uh, which wrote a book about giants also, uh, and Jim Vieira did the TV show, um, The Search for Giants, um, Yeah. and he's a friend. Uh, Jim's a really good guy. <laughs> He'd be a great guest, by the way. Um, I've had him on he, the show. Oh, excellent. Very good. Uh, he and Hugh uh, are currently trying to finish a book of all of the reports uh, throughout Europe of giants, which they tell me uh, far exceed anything in the Americas, and perhaps because uh, they've been digging into things a lot longer than we have here, no pun intended. Uh, but European, <laughs> archaeology, uh, European archaeology is a lot older than American archaeology. I have on my website a, a whole section on giants, and I have hundreds of um, sightings, not sightings, but hundreds of articles that have been printed about giant discovery and stuff like that. Um, the the other question that I had for you was th- there is such such a, a, a tremendous amount of material as to the um, the history of this continent that has been ignored and and there's such a legacy here. Is there no organization that is really overlooking all of it and trying to pull it all together so it can be saved? Or is it up to just individuals like you and, and the Vieiras and, and Hugh Newman and, and all of the other guys out there to to draw attention to it before it's destroyed? I know in the Northeast here there used to be 800 chambers. Now there are only 200, and that, that number is diminishing by the day as, Roads are widened, and people need big stones for their patios and all sorts of stuff. Um, is there no way to to really rouse public attention more so than we have yet? Well, the, let me answer the first question first, and then the short answer. The first thing you asked was, is there an organization that kind of oversees it all? The answer, of course, is no. Um, to use a well-worn, horrible joke, archaeology is in ruins. Um, <laughs> like, I, like I said, it's a really okay. bad joke. Uh, but is. no, North American archaeology is at odds with South American archaeology. They do not get along. They do not agree on the facts. South American archaeology is a world of its own. The big problem they have is they don't have as much money 
as we have, and they are dependent upon grants and having Americans sometimes come down and conduct the research there. But their journals, which are in Spanish, paint a vastly different picture of the Americas. In North America, we have uh, problems also within archaeology. Archaeology was thrown into a type of chaos in 1989 and 90 when the NAGPRA law took effect, uh, which, uh, caught, which forced the repatriation of all burial artifacts and, and skeletal remains to Native Americans and also prohibited the digging into burials. Uh, and it also forced archaeologists to get um, to work with Native American tribes to do almost any kind of excavations. So that threw them into chaos. And then in 1997, the Clovis barrier collapsed, which was their main theory they'd had for 70 years, that the only people, all the people that came into the Americas came from Siberia and Asia and hordes starting around 9,600 B.C., they were called the Clovis people, and they were the first here. That was an idea that held sway for 70 years, and in 1997 it collapsed. And since then, uh, they keep discovering again and again that every theory that they then propose, it then collapses with new evidence. So they are in, they are in chaos, and there's not a lot of money in archaeology now. Uh, because they can't do anything spectacular here in North America, like digging into a mound and exposing what's in it, uh, they aren't getting much money for research. So archaeology is a field, it's not dying, but it's definitely shrinking. Uh, and well, So when you get a field that's in competition, all these people are in competition with each other, which means there's less cooperation. So what's left are people like me, Andrew Collins, um, uh, Graham Hancock, Hugh Newman, Jim Vieira, and there's there's a couple dozen others. Um, uh, Jason, well, well, Jason, and Sarah. What Sorry. do you? What constitutes a Native American? I mean, how well, far back Native does Amer a Native American go? Well, Native Americans, uh, there is a type of DNA, uh, mitochondrial DNA, which is not human DNA, but it's in uh, most of your cells, not all of your cells, but most, they're not in red blood cells. That's the complication. Uh, but mitochondrial DNA is very unique in Native Americans. Uh, but also Native American DNA is also different. Uh, you can, in fact, be tested um, like recently happened with Elizabeth Warren. I've had my DNA tested, too, <laughs> because within my family, I wanted to know what my mitochondrial DNA haplogroup was, uh, mm -hmm. and that's an interesting story, too. There is a type of Native American DNA called haplogroup X, uh, which was the fifth one found, um, that is one of all of the mitochondrial DNA variations, of which there's around 32 or so, uh, that they don't have an origin for. Uh, but Native American haplogroups with mitochondrial DNA are A, B, C, D, and a variation of X. Uh, and that's kind of unique, only to them, to some indigenous South Americans, and to some people in Siberia. Uh, so that is one... I'm sorry? But wouldn't there be a way of determining if a skeletal remain 
was quote unquote Native American or yep. prior to Native American? I, well, I have argued on this show that Native Americans probably go back to uh, a couple hundred thousand years ago. But the answer is yes. Uh, we do have the ability to test uh, the DNA from skeletal remains, both mitochondrial DNA and the nuclear DNA, which is known as human DNA. Uh, we do mm-hmm. have the means to do that. However, it is illegal to do so. <laughs> of course and it is. There you go. It, the In order for them to test uh, Kennewick Man, which was the skeletal remains that were found in Washington State about a decade ago by two guys along the, um, I want to say it's the Washington River, but I don't remember the name of the river. Uh, they found it, and uh, they said it didn't look like Native American, and archaeologists got it wanted to test it, Native Americans wanted to bury it. It wound up going to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, it's about 8,000 years old. The skeleton was, was found to be about 8,000 years old. Uh, and it has since been reburied by Native Americans. They did, in fact, test its mitochondrial DNA, uh, and it was what is called haplogroup X, which is one that I'm absolutely fascinated with, uh, but it was reburied. But it had to go through, move all the way through the court system. People had to spend an enormous amount of money to move it through the court system to where they could even do the test, but then it was reburied right away. So the short answer is no. It is against it is against the law, federal law, to take any indigenous skeletal remains or burial remains and test them or do anything with them, display them or anything else. Uh, it's against so federal in, law. In, so in other words, if there's a body buried, it it's automatically Native American. Well, that's a good question. Uh, it it kind of depends on where it was found. There are laws about when if you find a body, uh, you usually call uh, the the whatever your county sheriff is or the local police department, uh, and they'll wind up bringing uh, some legal team in that will look at it, and they will make some sort of determination. If it's old beyond uh, historic times, they simply assume it's Native American. And so Native Americans will get it, uh, and it will be uh, reburied or cremated. That's the way it works. Uh, If it's of historic times, they will try to determine uh, if it is uh, a murder or something like that. Sometimes they'll test the DNA. Uh, But they can often tell the age just by evaluating whatever's found with it. Uh, and if necessary, they might carbon date it. But if it looks Native American, they won't even carbon date it. And by that, I mean if it looks really old. If it looks more than a few hundred years old, they're going to assume it's Native American. But well, isn't the, that putting uh, everything in a box? That, that, yep. that you know, well, you're, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, archaeology, like I said, it was thrown into chaos with this law. Uh, the NAGPRA law, N-A-G-P-R-A, stands for Native American Grave Repatriation and Protection Act. Uh, and it was, uh, I recall when I first got into visiting mounds, which was in 1983, the first mound site I went to, uh, they had a large burial mound that they had excavated, and it had a roof over it. And you could walk up and down through these aisles 
and it had about 150 skeletal remains that were in situ that had been excavated and were still in place and cleaned off with the little tags that they put with them and so on. Uh, and while that used to amaze school children that would walk through it uh, and the public would come in and gawk at it, imagine the same thing maybe happening in a cemetery where your grandparents are and they would open the coffin and have them for display and let people come in for a dollar or so and look at them. So that's how Native Americans looked at it, and I can understand that point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is well, how today. about your well, how about Europe and Africa and and I mean these these giant bones are all over the world. Yes, those could be tested if if they and I'm I am willing to. There was one uh, seven footer that's on display uh, in the Muller Museum in in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, I believe it's seven foot eight inches tall. Uh, there is an archaeologist who is a good friend of mine who I'm not allowed to name. Uh, we made an agreement. I will pay for the DNA and the mitochondrial DNA testing on it. Uh, we talked to the museum about it, and the and uh, he was going to be the lead researcher in it because I was very interested in it, as was he. And then uh, we uncovered the evidence of where it came from, uh, the skeleton came from, because everybody, the legend had been that it was Native American uh, and had come out of a burial. But it simply looked too good uh, to me and to the archaeologist. So we dug a bit and we eventually found the records uh, it's a long, involved story, but it is a guy who had been uh, taken to a mental institution, and he lived there his entire life uh, in a um, in a sanitarium, uh, and he was not allowed to leave. And when he died, uh, they because he was seven feet eight inches tall, they wound up selling his body to a museum. Uh, so there was no reason to then test it. Uh, he's he's modern, and chances are some of the modern people have gigantism or acromegalia, um, mm-hmm. which are both uh, disorders that actually genetic testing can find. Uh, but I'm I am very interested in ancient bones. Um, the archaeologist is still trying to find some from somewhere that we can test, since I'm willing to foot the bill for all the testing. And I'd be willing to do it if we could verify some of the ones in Europe, too. I'd love to find some that are definitely human, that are old. Uh, We can have carbon dating done to determine if they're old enough, but, of course, we need all the permissions. Uh, And there has to be uh, someone who is willing to be the lead researcher on it. Uh, And if you have the money, you can always find a lead researcher. So I'm not worried about finding a lead researcher. (laughs) Uh, We just need to find the bones. Well, you should, you should, if you have a chance, check out the giant section on my website. I will. Because there's I will do that. I, I will definitely there. do that. Uh, I'm just, you know, it's it's the same with the stone walls. It's the same with the stone chambers. It's the same with just about everything that, that you find on on this continent um, is is absolutely ignored. And it's almost as though... Excuse the well. Here, here come the men in black again. It's, it's almost as though our government really doesn't want you to know about the rich history that we had here, 
and yeah. how anybody could look at the antiquity around the world and, and, and then look at North America and say, but that's the only place there is no antiquity. Cause that's oh, we have, we have lots of it. Uh, I, I, uh, I'll tell you a story about the, uh, the, the stone walls and the chambers and stone mounds. Uh, I did a book. Uh, I have a book called The Illustrated Encyclopedia of Native American Mounds and Earthworks. And it goes through all the states that have mounds, and I tried to be be pretty um, thorough with it. Um, it was a project I started in 1983. But after that book came out, uh, it's done really well, and I did a revised edition uh, that added a bunch, and it has 3,000 sites in it. That's how thorough I was. But I decided I wanted to test out and maybe do a state-by-state version uh, in full color and take some really good photographs and really try to cover the state thoroughly. So for reasons that I can't really explain, I simply decided on doing Alabama first. And <laughs> in in the course of starting on Alabama, uh, I started doing more research. I knew what all the major sites were, and then I found quite accidentally uh, this newspaper article uh, about um, a huge stone mound in Alabama, near Oxford, Alabama, that had been uh, bulldozed. And they said all the stones of it were used in the um, parking lot of a Sam's Club. Uh, they were bulldozed down a mountain to this parking lot. Anyway, that was the newspaper story. And it had a lot of pictures in it of Native Americans protesting. There were several hundred people there. So in the course of, of trying to discover what in the world is this about, I contacted the newspaper reporter, and he admitted to me he didn't really know what had happened. He said he had conflicting reports after it, and he said, I don't know. So I then found uh, in the article they quoted an archaeologist, and I can mention his name. He's now become a friend. He'd be a good guest for your show, too. You want somebody who's a mainstream, academic, full-tenured professor in archaeology uh, who will tell you how bad his field is. It's this guy. His name is Harry Holstein, Dr. Holstein. Uh, he's at the University of, of Jacksonville. Uh, so I contacted this guy, and we wound up uh, and visiting him and spending a, a couple days in his area. Uh, he has discovered, and this is all just in recent years, this tells you about our undiscovered country. Uh, he has discovered literally thousands of stone walls and stone mounds in Alabama, central Alabama, which most people don't, if you haven't been there, it's hard to describe, but it's heavily wooded, a lot of mountains. Uh, Fort McClellan, Alabama, really is in the heart of all this. And some of these stone walls and stone mounds were in the firing range of Fort McClellan, which was an ordnance testing site for a long time. And when mm. you go and you visit these, when you go to some of these places, you have to go through an area that it's it's actually hilarious. It shows a bomb exploding and two kids flying into the air, and it says, Danger. 
So it's, there's unexploded <laughs> ordnance in there. It's, it's hilarious, but it's all these signs are all over the place, meaning don't go in. But he has permission to do it. So he took us and walked us around for an entire day. We saw probably 200 stone mounds. We saw, and, and I can't even guess how many of the stone walls that we saw. Uh, several hundred. They are identical to a lot of them in the Northeast, uh, in in Vermont and New Hampshire, throughout New England. There are a lot in Pennsylvania. They're they're all over the place in the Northeast. Uh, yep. They're identical to those. There are literally thousands of them, and they and there's there are four standing stones in Alabama attributed to. Indigenous cultures, nobody knows how old they are. I mean, these are large standing stones like obelisks, uh, and they're usually set in the middle of a large stone mound. And all of these are Native American, and they know that because some of these stone mounds have been carefully excavated. Not all legally excavated, I will say. Uh, Harry Holstein will tell the story of how uh, some people, locals, he got to know, would tell him, told him about these sites, so he would start visiting them. And they were the first ones to actually deconstruct the stone mounds to see what they were in, what was in them. Uh, none of the ones that they deconstructed, at least they wouldn't admit to this, were burials. Uh, but they did have Native American artifacts in them. So this is just one area of Alabama that's probably no more than 40 by 40 miles in extent. Uh, heavily wooded, not areas where people go. Loads of rattlesnakes. Uh, interestingly, there are probably, well, we saw three. I think there are five rattlesnake stone mounds, mounds that are formed into the shape of rattlesnakes on the tops of these mountains. Uh, one of them, I believe, is 450 feet long. And it's like the, the head of it is very clearly visible. There's this big stack uh, of stones that form a beautiful rattlesnake head. Uh, even the scales are formed by, by these stones. Uh, but it was all untouched. These are not areas where people went. Like I said, a lot of it was on the grounds of Fort McClellan, and they didn't have access to it till Fort McClellan was closed a few years ago. So these things are probably hidden in loads of areas of our country where we simply don't look, don't think to look. And frankly, I don't know how many kids today are interested in walking through dense woods and mountains looking for what may be there. They're more interested in social media or whatever, or games. Uh, so we do have a time when interest in all this is waning with, with younger people. And I don't think the government, the government, whatever that means, is actively hiding it. I just think they don't care. Uh, mainstream archaeology does not want you to know where these sites are. I will say that. If you try and get access to all of the known sites, as I recall, Alabama has 47,000 sites or so. I put the exact number in the book. Uh, wow. But getting access to all those sites and knowing their location is restricted to most people. And I didn't want to write a book about Alabama that had 47,000 sites in it. My interest was <laughs> only in, in mounds that people could be that they could visit and go see. 
but yeah, they what did. I did uh, what I did with um the stone chambers here in the northeast i um I visited most of them and I GPS them and there's a map with the GPS coordinates on it on the website. I'll have a look at that too. I have seen another one that that I think Jim Vieira put up some years ago. Uh, and we did go to a lot of those uh, with Jim Vieira in the Northeast, and um, Andrew Collins was along with us. Uh, and the stone mounds, the, uh, the the stone chambers, and the walls on the mountains there are just identical to the ones in Alabama. And these wow. mountains in Alabama are are not agricultural. They were never used for agriculture. They were never used for grazing. Um, and no one would go up there and do that. We do know, uh, both Harry Holstein and I agree on in what they were used for and what was going on there, and it does go back to certain rituals that were performed. Uh, the Stone Mound, by the way, in Oxford, Harry took us to that. They have They actually removed all those stones, and they put them in a truck, and they reconstructed it about a mile away in a park where they also reconstructed a famous mound site uh, that was visited by DeSoto. Uh, and that's it's actually kind of sad, but it's a gigantic stone mound, uh, about seven feet tall, but, I mean, it's gigantic uh, in size, made out of these big boulders. Uh, but at least they did decide to try and... I guess retain some culture with it, but it's not the original thing. So it is sad. Uh, I I think mainly it's it's not that the government's doing it on purpose. I don't think anybody really cares at that level. There's somebody who does, but they don't have any power or authority. So that's why I suggest people go support it as much as they can. Visit sites. Go to the museums. Give them a few dollars. Uh, it's not like you're feeding the poor uh, or trying to keep somebody alive, but do give them a little bit of, of something and, and recognize what they're doing is worthwhile and try to teach your children about some of it. It's a culture and it's a history that we need to start recognizing. But we, what you've got to remember is when people came, when the Europeans came here, they carried European culture and history. That's why when I was in school, and when anybody who's older was in school, we learned a lot of European history. Now, and I will tell you right. this. In England, they don't teach much about American history. They don't care. It's irrelevant to them. They don't really care. But we taught European history. And I don't recall in elementary, high school, or even college ever hearing anything about Native American history, ever. Do you? No. Uh, I never had those classes. That's why I don't remember it being mentioned in anything, history or otherwise. You know, we there might have been a story about Pocahontas. Uh, that's possible. Uh, John Smith. That's possible. But that's about it. Uh, I just don't recall ever hearing anything else. So it yeah. it truly is a lost culture. Um, there are people really attempting to bring it back, to have it recognized. I am one of those people, um, and there are others. But 
I I don't know. I don't I don't see us. Uh, I see it. If it can't be digitized, it's not going to exist. Uh, and as a uh, TV producer told us uh, once, we were we used to make a lot of documentaries. Uh, and one of the producers told us, if you're not on the internet, you don't exist. And he said, if a book does, if a book's not on the internet, it doesn't exist as far as we're concerned, because we're not going to go to a library, we're not going to do any research to find anybody other than get online and look. And I think that's what's going to happen with most of this. I think it'll just slowly but surely fade, and these things will simply become an anomaly uh, that some locals will know about, and you'll take a local person out to look at, and they'll gawk at it, and then go back and play video games. <laughs> Pretty sad outlook I have there. Yeah, well, you know, we're trying to change that with our show, you know, just make it a little bit more history and museum oriented. But I hope, hope the listeners like it. But this, I, I think this show is paying off. It's, I, I'm sure the those who are listening tonight and who are going to listen on the archives are going to have in. IQ explosion. Uh, the CDC might try to shut us down for being hazardous, but there we are back to the government trying to sh- shut us down. But uh, you know, I, you know, Greg, I think you know what you're doing is, you know, like hopefully motivating listeners to support local museums. That's one of the ideas behind what. Barbara and I want to do with this show. Well, that's definitely something that I believe in doing. That's the; those are the places that have your local history. Uh, there are probably fifty really good mound-oriented museums in America. There are quite a few in the Southwest uh, that are uh, focused on those tribes, but uh, the mound museums all deserve some support. The one of the shocking things that occurred to me is we we did a tour to Indian Mounds in Ohio. We took 104 people on a tour, two tour buses. We went into the Ohio State uh, Museum in Columbus. We met with Bradley Lepper, uh, who was the head of Arche- Ohio Archaeology. He gave him a lecture, and we got to go through and look at all the artifacts and various things they had there, and it was a fantastic display. Two years later, we did the same thing. We took another tour group in. We met with Leper again, and he had to – they had reduced his time there, uh, so he had to come in and meet us. And then I had gone in earlier, and none, uh, no Native American artifacts, none of the displays on the mounds in Ohio – were visible. Nothing was. And I asked him where it was, and he said, well, they decided there was not enough interest in it. So he took us into another room where they had it all in drawers, uh, and he had to pull it out of the drawers and show to our people. But he said that there just wasn't any interest in it there. So they pulled all the Native American stuff from display. Uh, and that was one of the saddest things that I've that I've seen at these sites. Uh, the federal government does have... Um, I cannot I cannot give an accurate number. Uh, I want to say at least ten uh, mound museums uh, that are that are federal sites. Uh, most states have a few. Mississippi has a mound trail, which is just fantastic. There's a free guidebook you can get 
online. Louisiana has a lot of sites, and of course, the oldest mounds in in America are in Louis, in North America, are in Louisiana, uh, and most of those you can visit. And of course, the there's a really an incredible site called Poverty Point, uh, which Poverty Point's earthworks are so big that the earth in them. This is a a number that's been calculated by the archaeologists. Uh, you could fill the Great Pyramid more than 30 times with the earth used at Poverty Point to build the earthworks there. And it dates back to about 3000 B.C. Uh, but it's not the oldest of the mounds. The oldest mounds are near, uh, they're actually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and they date to about 4800 B.C., so 6,800 years ago. So as far as we know, mound building in North America began 6,800 years ago. Uh, it began in South America, though, 10,500 years ago. So that is, and there's another thing about South America. Pottery didn't appear in North America until almost 3,000 years after it was everywhere in South and Central America. So all these things moved up north. It's like corn, agriculture, everything seemed to go from the south to the north. And North American archaeologists really don't like that. Um, but it is true that mound building and, and South America has giant stone pyramids, some of which that are bigger than those in, Europe, in um, Egypt. But North American archaeologists don't really talk about that much. Um, I think it's a it is a profession left with too little to do, and I have been arguing with a few of them uh, who I am uh, friends with, and we have some friendly debates now and then. Uh, I have told them that they need to start taking it to the public instead of writing these incredibly boring books that they are writing only for their colleagues to to force their university library to buy at 75 to 150 dollars for a book uh, they need to write books for the populace and that is what's missing so people like myself uh, and andrew and the others uh, we're trying to write the books that they should be writing they need to be writing these things uh, i would gladly move aside uh, and help fund their research if they would start giving the public interesting information rather than taking a pottery shard and generating an entire culture from it, which is what a lot of them do. Um, but that is, uh, that's the way it is today. Um, and then we have one thing we never mentioned here, um, and I know we're getting close to the end. Um, as I'm, I'm sure you know, uh, my wife and I were involved in um, some some extensive underwater research in the Bahamas, following up on some archaeological things there. Uh, and actually, it wasn't initially Atlantis that we were looking for, but then we got asked to take over a project for Edgar Casey's organization, and we got involved in the search for Atlantis. And we wrote a number of books about it, issued a lot of articles, and did a lot of TV shows on it since they got really interested in it. But one of the things that I've only revealed, this is only the second time, 
when I first got involved with it, an archaeologist who will go unnamed told me that a guy who worked for the United States Geological Survey had fabricated fake objects, fake stone artifacts, statues and other things, and then surreptitiously, that is he didn't tell anybody but his colleagues and a university which knew about it, he took these over to the Bimini Islands, to the formation known as the Bimini Road, and he planted those under the stones which people had had initially claimed were from Atlantis. And he did that with the he did it while he was in working in the labs, the Geological Service labs in Miami. All of his colleagues knew about it, which they were all supposedly scientists with ethics, all worked for the federal government, and university professors knew about it because they visited him while he was doing it, yet they never, ever said a word about it. And he admitted on film, the geologist admitted that, yeah, he did it hoping that some of these alternative theorists would find it and write about it, and then he could expose that they got hoaxed somehow uh, and make a get a big laugh out of it. So that's one of the things that we fight also. It's this other side, and they're not always skeptics, uh, this other side does whatever they can to deride the alternative theorists. So I, I'm, the reason I'm, I'm saying this is that I know a lot of skeptics believe everything other skeptics say. Because I've been, I've been attacked by skeptics a few times, as has anybody that's written in this field. But they're not always honest. And they're sometimes capable of doing things that, to me, are, are so unethical, I didn't even believe that, that it was possible that somebody, a so-called scientist, even if he hated you, would do that. Um, and I didn't believe it till I saw him actually say it, and and it was filmed. So don't believe everything you hear about us. Don't believe everything you hear about uh, from skeptics because it's not all true. And don't believe everything we say. Go out and look for yourself. Take a look at it. And it's very interesting once you get into it. Okay, and- Hey, Greg, we're down to about uh, two minutes. Uh, do you have any upcoming appearances, websites you want to uh, let the public uh, know about? As you probably know, I, I have been doing about one to two conferences a year, which is about all I can stand. I generate a lot of written material. I write books regularly. I have a lot of them coming out, and several coming out in January uh, in my professional field which I'm still pretty active in. Uh, but I don't do many conferences. Uh, the next one will be probably sometime late next year. Uh, as far as websites, go to apmagazine.info, apmagazine.info. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. It's Dr. Greg Little 2 and Facebook. Um, and on Facebook, I'm Gregory L. Little. Uh, I try to keep the two separated. On Twitter, I talk about my professional stuff, and Facebook is more for these alternative things. And it's been a pleasure. I, I do thank you both, and I know we're, we're the clock is moving down close to zero here. Yep, and yeah, it's it, time to say goodnight. <laughs> well, I will definitely look at you. your, your website 
Um, and Barbara, I appreciate it very much. And uh, I'll probably send you an email after I look through this. Um, okay. Think about testing oh, well, we're gonna, some of these skeletons. Yes, we are going to to have you back again for sure. All right. Well, I appreciate it. You all have a good night, and to your listeners, thanks for listening. Yeah, okay. uh, Barbara, good I think night. we have some. Yeah, I think we're going to have some books to read uh, next year. I, and I, I think you're very, very right on that one, Mark. You're down <laughs> to. You're down to say good night, Gracie. Good night, Mark. Thank you, everyone. We'll, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Good night, Gracie. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it means. Good night. <laughs>